the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, for those of you uh, who may not be aware of this, I'm, I'm saying this to you all, and to all of you who are uh, watching online at this time, uh, I would remind you that uh, this morning, uh, my good colleague, uh, Father Drew here, preached from the same text that I'm preaching from, uh, and so I would really encourage you to, to tune into that one too when you get a chance to, to listen to that one. Same text, a uh, little different take on some things. I promise you, though, there was no collusion between he and I. We, we, did, we did not confer, no conspiracies, uh, none of that stuff whatsoever, but, uh, but a different emphasis, so uh, very, very good stuff that you need to listen to. Well, the event that we just uh, read about in Matthew's Gospel occurred late in our Lord's earthly life, and by then that there was probably no one in and around Israel who was not familiar with this young traveling rabbi. So he asks his 12 disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? What's the word on the street? What's going on out there? Son of Man being how he often referred to himself. Some 32 times just in Matthew's Gospel alone, he kind of speaks of himself in that third person singular as the Son of Man. Now, you know, I'm pretty sure Jesus already knew. Aren't you? So why is he asking this question? Well, being a great teacher, he often used questions to make them think. So as I kind of picture this in my mind's eye, after a brief huddle, Peter, the unofficial spokesman, says, well, some say that you're the late John the Baptist come back to life. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or some of the other prophets. And then Jesus pulls the trigger, asking, but who do you say that I am? That's the question, isn't it? And it's interesting that the you here is plural. He's not just speaking to Peter, although Peter will provide an answer, but he's, he's pre speaking to all 12 of them. See, the you is actually plural. I, I don't think that in the Aramaic language of their day that, that there's a y'all. But, but that's, that's what we would have said, those of us from Georgia. If you're from North Georgia, we would say what? Ewans. Ewans. How many of you know that? Okay, you're not, you've never been to North Georgia then. All right. But, so, he, so he's asking them all this question. And it's a question that all of us must answer as well. We, we simply do. I mean, you could take polls and you see polls. Who is Jesus? And you'll see a whole range of opinions. The question remains the same. And I dare say, as my colleague pointed out in the first sermon, that it's the most important question there really is. Who is Jesus? Well, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Short, simple, to the point, you're the Messiah, the anointed one, all of which implies a great many things, but among them, an everlasting priesthood in which we as believers, as his followers, are truly and finally reconciled to God. And because of that, we will live in his everlasting kingdom. John's letter at the, at the end of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, he says these wonderful words, and I always hear them to the tune of, Handel's Messiah, whenever I read this verse, the kingdom of this world has, notice, not will, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign 
forever and ever, and we with him. Amen? Now, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and who his followers claimed him to be, well, beloved, that changes everything. Jesus was and is God in the flesh, whose death for his people atones or pays for our sins, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, if all that's not true, well, that too changes everything. I mean, opinions vary now as then, but it's still one or the other. There's, 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 there's really no other choice on any of this. And, and no one said this better. I racked my brain trying to uh, come up with something myself, and, and if anybody else had, and some of you are familiar with this quote, it bears repeating at this point, though, of C.S. Lewis and his uh, wonderful book, Mere Christianity, where he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, our Lord goes on to remind Peter and us that this confession, this confession of Peter's as well as ours, is not the result of our own smarts or our own goodness. Far from it. Verse 17, he reminds him, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, you are the son of Jonah, you're not. For, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And he is the only one who can truly open the eyes of our understanding to that awareness. And not just so that we acknowledge it, and it's one of the things I fear that some people, when we say the creeds and confessions and so forth, that we say those words. But I wonder how many among us say, yeah, I, I'm really convinced of that. I'm truly persuaded that that is the case. Well, only you can answer that for you. Peter and the others were blessed by God who opened their eyes. The flip side of that we see in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 3. He's speaking there of unbelievers, those who deny Jesus or have yet to believe. He says, if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's Satan, of course to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we need to be very clear about that. It's not something I can persuade you to do. I couldn't put a gun to your head and convince you, oh, you might say the words, but only God can truly persuade us of the truthfulness of those claims. Well, Jesus goes on to say, 
to Peter. And I tell you that you are Peter. That, that, that's a nickname that our Lord gave him. It, it's very similar to the word rock. And it's, uh, if it were today, we would call him Rocky, something like that. It was just a nickname Jesus gave him. In, in Aramaic, it sounds very much like that. But, but he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock of your confession, I will build my church. That's one of those things that Lewis is talking about. Who would say such a thing as that and still be thought sane, unless, of course, it's true? And he goes on to say, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that is, against the church. John Calvin's comment on this passage is really helpful. He said this, against all the power of Satan, the firmness of the church will prove to be invincible because the truth of God on which the faith of the church rests will ever remain unshaken. Yet this passage also instructs us that so long as the church shall continue to be a pilgrim in the earth, pilgrim meaning we're, we're sojourners, we're, we're not permanent residents. As long as that's true, she will never enjoy rest, but will be exposed to many attacks. And when it is declared that Satan will not conquer, this implies that he will be her constant enemy. Let us learn that this promise is, as it were, the sound of a trumpet calling us to be always ready and prepared for battle. Thus Peter describes the church as living stones. Later in his letter, many years later, decades later, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, to those believers who have now come to the faith, as he did, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, that's who Jesus is, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We refer to this as the house of the Lord, and, and rightly so, but we, we need to understand that whether it's made of stone or concrete or whatever, that, that the church of God is the people, and that we are, he likens us to these living stones. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now I have a question for you. How many militants do we have in the room here? Any of you militants? Anybody here a militant? Yes, young man, you're a militant. Very good. I like that. Mr. Livingston there. Are you the only militant here? No one else is a militant? It's not a trick question. Ah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I chose to go in this direction. So we are as believers, what is known in theological terms as the church militant. That's actually a technical phrase, a technical way of describing it. You and me, followers of Jesus here on the earth, there is also a thing called the church triumphant. Oh, so there are two churches? No, no, no. no please, no. There's one church, but there is the church triumphant. Those are followers of Jesus whose earthly journey is over. They're already at home, but they're still part of the body of Christ. And so are you and I. But we're the church here on earth, also known as the church militant. And it's interesting that that's actually kind of tucked away, the implication of that in our liturgy of the table that we'll hear in just a few minutes. When we are engaged in worship, guess what? We all worship together as a church. You recall part of the communion liturgy. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices 
with angels and archangels and who? Who's next? Come on. All the company of heaven. All the company of heaven. That's not just the angels. We already got them. Angels and archangels. Yeah, we already got the company of heaven. Are those believers who have gone on before us? Many of my ancestors and people that I've read about and I've read their writings from hundreds and thousands of years ago, they're there too. And they're worshiping with us. We're worshiping with them. Isn't that great? It's kind of tough. You know, we look around us and we say, oh, somebody earlier said to me at the end of the second service, I just hate it. It's just like there's no one here and, you know, all this stuff. But, you know, I didn't go into all this, but I thought, Oh, we're worshiping with all the saints and all the angels and all those who have gone before us. Anglicans and others believe that the church on earth is united with the church in heaven. That's all this means. They speak of the church militant here on, church, on earth. The church triumphant is that which is in heaven. Now the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews puts it this way. He speaks of us as being surrounded by what is called a great cloud of witnesses. That's what he's talking about, those who have gone on before. And he includes in that group uh, these Old Testament saints where he says, let us also, like them, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And by the way, that word witnesses there in Hebrews is the Greek word martyrion. We get our word martyr from that which again speaks to the idea that we're still at war. We're still the militant church at battle. So it's not always easy. It's not going to be easy. People almost every week, somebody tells me how difficult it is to, to live the Christian life. It's so hard to love this person. It's so hard to do, do the right thing sometimes. Whoever said it would be easy? Our Lord certainly never did. I came across this from a Canadian uh, brother uh, just this past week. He says, the church is not on the defensive, fighting a losing battle, but it is always on the offensive, always conquering. We must remember that the church is never shrinking. It is always growing. When converts are added, they are members for all eternity. Looking forward and upward, we set our minds on Christ, who sits as the victorious King of Kings at the right hand of God. That's Colossians 3.1. Knowing that he is sovereign over all things, we can rejoice in the midst of trials, understanding that they are not ultimately harming us. In his sovereign plan, all of our trials, even within the church, are perfecting our faith in Christ. In the midst of the battle, it's easy to get discouraged by the bumps, bruises, and wounds that we suffer. So we must be reminded that our captain, I love that, our captain has already conquered sin and death. He is risen indeed. His strategies will never fail, and all his soldiers will triumph. Let us look upward and forward to the time when he will dwell in the midst of his perfect church and will make all things new, as Revelation 21 promises us. Now, as I come to a close, I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you're a football player, a really good football player, college football, the most important game of your career. Is, is next. National championships, all on the line. It's coming up. And somehow, magically or some, in some strange way, you have come to know, and you alone, that your team is going to win. Not your team should win or could win, but your team, absolutely, there's no doubt about it in your mind, you are going to win that game. 
Now, my question is this. Would you play any differently if you knew that, if you were in that situation? Well, maybe a few people would say, well, I'm just going to take it easy. I'm not going to get myself hurt out there. You might not throw that block quite as hard. You might be a little more cautious. But, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an athlete. I never really was. But uh, I know enough athletes to know that most really good athletes would do just the opposite. I mean, they'd fasten their chin strap tight and put their game face on and play full throttle, pedal to the metal, holding nothing back. And beloved, that's the way it should be with you and me. Now, it's not going to be easy. It's still not going to be easy. But we have the promise of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus, the captain of our salvation, will bring us to glory and victory. Amen? And if you agree, I'm going to ask you to uh, take a look up here. I think we have a slide. One of the great hymns of the faith that, that speaks to this very thing. I want us to say it together. Can't sing it together right now, but we can sure say it, right? So you, you, you've got the words right here. Let's say it together. Ready? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Father in heaven, may it ever be so, and may it be so uh, soon. We look for your soon return, and we pray that whether we meet you in the air or whether we meet you at death's door, we pray that we will be able to say, as the apostle did, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.